As our society continues to unveil fractures within its social and political systems, the show, Align Traced, aims to examine topics that are immediate, pressing, and impact the built environment in ways that require urgent architectural responses. A podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. Welcome to the next episode of this series of Align Traced which will focus on female pioneers in the history of virtual reality. I'm Paula Strunden. I'm a transdisciplinary VR artist with a background in architecture and taught on the AA's Media Studies program. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Shah Davis, best known for her groundbreaking virtual reality artwork Osmosi, which combines immersive environments with embodied interfaces and a profound connection to nature. Hi, Shar. It's so nice to see you again. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'll dive right into it, and I'd like to start from the very beginning. So could you please share with us why and how you began working with virtual technologies in the 1990s? How did you learn about it, and what were your first experiences? The first time I saw what would be considered 3D virtual space was back in 1983, I was working as a freelancer at the National Film Board in Montreal, Canada, and I saw a little animated film, I believe it was made in 1982, called Vol de Rev, or Dream Flight, that was made at the University of Montreal. And it was um, constructed with 3D vector graphics, basically wireframe in black space, I haven't seen it for 40 years. I looked at it the other day. Most of it, looking back, is rather awful because it was so early. So if anyone goes to look it up, the only part that interested me back then was the first 30 seconds after the music and the intro that feels very dated those first 30 seconds were a little wireframe man. I believe he was green vectors and he was throwing ping pong balls in a pond against black space. And then it goes on for another 10 minutes, which I had no interest in. And I've always remembered that little man throwing rocks in the pond with the ripples. And when I saw that, I thought, I would like to work in that space on the other side of the 2D picture plane. So I would say that was my first glimpse. So that would have been going all the way back. My gosh, that's almost 40 years. And I began to attempt to gain access to working with 3D computer technology many different ways. They all failed. I don't we don't have time to go into those efforts, but eventually in the about 87, 86, 87, in order to gain access, I became involved with building a 3D software company, Soft Image, which I was a founding director, was very involved in the company for 10 years, and it became a world-leading 3D animation company. And I learned to use the software by writing the user manual because I was the only person at the company at the time who could speak English 
because it was in Montreal. And when I had time during those early years, I started making a series of 3D still images back in 1991, which were exhibited at places like Ars Electronica, etc. And we also made a little film at the company called West of Eden. It's about 10 minutes. And it was um, basically a look at the Western culture's relationship with nature. And um, that is, I would say, my introduction. But then going forward, if we skip forward to um, no, those years, 1993, I played a little computer game called Spectre. I never played computer games, video games, except Spectre one Christmas with my young nephew. And Spectre at the time was 3D vector graphics, wireframe against black space. And it was a little tank that you went around and you tried to collect flags and not get shot, etc. But what interested me is it was my first experience of first person point of view so i would say those would be the formative experiences in answer to that question yeah it's super exciting that you actually had these yeah actual game experience or also yeah um and it was a tank it was military <laughs> i got very addicted i didn't ski i didn't go outside i just sat there and played this little tiny vector tank and then i think years later they put 3d realistic textures on everything in the game no interest for me at all but it's super interesting what you just described with this other side of the screen so the your experience of viewing that uh, video and wanting to be on the other side of the screen because you have a background in painting yes maybe you could tell us a bit about that well i i Had been, I'd started off as a painter with some documentary filmmaking as a way of making money on the side. But as a painter, I really wanted to cross over the picture plane, as I thought of it, into this other space. It wasn't called virtual space, but I thought of it as just on the other side. And so when, in fact, I was um, working with the Softimage software, And I was making those still images or working on that little film. Really, I was creating on the other side of the picture plane because I was creating in 3D. But you couldn't enter, you couldn't bodily enter that space because it wasn't immersive at that time. And then so the first immersive or like yeah, larger seminal works that you created were then Osmosi in 1995 and Ephemera in 1998. And um, yeah, I think the most beautiful would be if you would describe in your words maybe what these works meant to you and also what was, yeah, what was maybe surprising or thrilling or interesting for you as, a, as an artist, as a creator making them at that time. Well, I began writing out my goals for Osmos in 1993. I wrote a long white paper, as I called it. And by then, 1993, I was an outside, an insider in the software industry, even though as an artist and a woman, I was kind of an outsider also, not surprisingly. And because I had been an insider, 
I become increasingly aware of the cultural values that were being reinforced by the technology of 3D computer graphics. And partly, I remember being very, I would say almost the word would be educated, informed by reading Heidegger's essay, The Question Concerning Technology, where he talks about, he's talking about a different kind of technology back then, but he was he was talking about how technology turns the world into standing reserve for human use. And that really gave me a very different perspective or it upheld my increasing sense that the values being promoted in the technology were patriarchal. They were reinforcing a sense of control and domination, as well as disembodiment. And none of this was surprising because the origins of the technology were coming out of the military. So, in starting to write about Osmos, I wanted to subvert or at least circumvent the conventions that were in the technology. And I'd started to write about this even in artist statements related to the still images going back all the way to 91. So in seeking to subvert those values, I thought number one, I need to I want to reaffirm the body. And the way to do that is to use breath and balance in the interface because that grounds the experience in the body core, in the visceral flesh of the body. I wanted to undo or dismantle the habitual urge to control and dominate. So I removed the reliance on a hand-based interface, which I believed reinforced this behavior towards the world, which was do this to that, very instrumental. And then I also wanted to shift immersions out of being on autopilot in terms of walking on a treadmill, riding a bicycle, whatever was happening that that at that time with the technology, but dehabituate their assumptions and have them start paying more attention, refocus their attention to intensify their awareness of their own experience. And so the way I chose to do that was to use semi-transparency in the graphics. And when I hired John Harrison, who still works with me after a 10-year gap, he came to me in our in the job interview and said, that's not possible yet, technically. And I said, okay, fine. I won't hire you because I won't do the work unless we can have semi-transparency in real time because I wanted to dismantle this visual aesthetic of photorealism of hard-edged objects in empty space, which was the dominant aesthetic of the time. Everybody, it was either Toy Story or, or it was going <clears throat> further and further into photorealism. And I was trying to take that apart. 
So he came up with a way of doing semi-transparency in real time, which the work also became known for less less known for that than the breath and balance, but the semi-transparency was as important because it led to spatial ambiguity. So if someone is immersed in the work and they're not sure what they're seeing all the time because figure and ground start becomes fluid, objects start becoming more vague, they begin to pay more attention. And another way we did that was to deliberately use low resolution in the graphics. So what people were seeing was soft. So those were the um, those were the methods for subverting the dominant uses of the technology and the conventions in it. And at that time, what I wanted really to do was illuminate what I thought was the potential of the technology, light a lamp in a dark corner to prove to people that this medium, and I didn't think of it as technology, I didn't call it virtual reality, I called it immersive virtual space, that this medium was capable of alternative uses and carrying alternative values and uh, including the reaffirmment of our embodiment and turning attention back to our being here on the earth instead of escape. And that really, one of the things that inspired me, and again, I'm not a philosophy scholar, but I've often often been inspired and informed by reading philosophers. So I just kind of nibble at what what has what's useful to me, even if a scholar might say I've misinterpreted it or whatever. So one of the the ideas that also encouraged me was again reading Heidegger and reading Heidegger's interpretations of the mystic Meister Eckhart and the concept of Gelassenheit which meant, as I interpreted it in the reading, a sense of releasement and letting be. So as the poet might feel in wonder and awe before the blooming of the rose, and that is the opposite of being in control, that's the opposite of an instrumental stance towards the world. And so that's led to the ethics that were driving those works for me in terms of attending and tending. And in many ways, Osmos was a lament. And it was a lament for the earth. In fact, when I was, another uh, seminal experience I'd had was when I was about 20 and I was in college and I remember going for a walk somewhere in southern Vermont and being overcome with a sense of grief for the earth. And I lay down and put my face in the earth and just started to cry. And all of a sudden, I heard this all this twittering and all the little bushes around me had filled up with little birds to come and see what was happening. So that kind of sadness for what was happening the earth I was feeling almost more than 40 years ago and that 
was part of making Osmos because Osmos and Ephemer were an expression of the land I had just moved to here in southern Quebec, where I still live. And Osmos contains more than 5,000 words, line, lines of text in the upper realm of the work, like a part of the conceptual parentheses around the work, which was about disappearing wilderness and our relationship with, with um, nature. So I would say that's about, I could go on for a very long time, but maybe that's enough for that second, second question. Thank you so much, Char. That's, yeah, it's really amazing. And it's also one of the things that I think is most inspiring about your work, that you create this yeah, very strong multisensory embodied experiences. And I think something that I'd like to ask you is the term that you came up with describing the people who are entering these experiences. So you developed this neologism of the immersant. And I think it would be really nice if you could extend a bit on the role of that immersant and which... Um, Yeah, which role it plays within the experiences you developed and what immersion means to you. Um, and then maybe also because reading through the reflections of the people who describe what they have yeah, felt going through your work is that there's this very strong sense of uh, transcendentality or also that they describe having these meditative experiences. And I think it would be really nice if you explain to us a bit where you think that stems from and why these Yeah, there the immersion's emotional responses were so strong um, experiencing your work. For me, when I think of immersion and when I thought of it all those years ago, I was really imagining it as enveloping space. Space that you could feel close up against the skin, which I'll get to a little little further along, but To go back to the part of your question that, that asked about how immersants experienced the work, I designed installations so it became very ritualistic. And the immersants would enter into a dark space where there would be an audience who would be watching, witnessing live the visuals and hearing the sounds of someone having a journey. But the immersion would walk through that, and then they'd walk into a dark chamber where it would be very private and there would be an attendant. So they felt safe. It was cloistered. And it was solitary. Then when they had their experience, their shadow would be projected, which again made it very ritualistic against a orange background, almost as if it was fire. And I think that that cloistered, solitary aspect of the installation was hugely important in enabling people to have those experiences that you referred to. That cloistered solitude combined with the use of breath and balance, so you're deep breathing the whole time, you're changing your center of balance around your spine, so you're grounded. The visual aesthetic of semi-transparency where you're not sure you're, what, you're, what you're seeing, 
and the the completely surround of, surround of sound and the fact that all of this is responsive to you in real time it's not being in a 360 film your your it's all responding to you those set the conditions for the experience and i wrote an essay about this called osmos notes on being before the work was ever in exhibited and that essay was published in 1995 in the proceedings of ISEA, the Electronic Symposium, Art, whatever it's called, when Osmos had its premiere. So I think what's interesting about that essay, which I haven't read in a long time, is it laid out my strategies and all my goals, but I didn't, nobody had been in the work yet. So then this leads me to the second part of your question, which is um, people's responses. And, uh, and the response was quite overwhelming. So as I told you earlier, I was somewhat surprised. But then on the other hand, I wasn't, and and I, it got, the work got attacked too. I mean, there were negative responses and et cetera. But in general, the the what seemed most most interesting was that many people were emotionally overcome. And I heard about half a dozen men, instances of men who would come out of the work, go and sit in a dark corner, and they would cry. I never heard women that women did this, only men. I heard that people thought they'd experienced dying and they weren't afraid of dying anymore. And for me, I wasn't surprised about that because I had been through experiences of loss. I'd recently lost my younger brother in a car accident. I'd had breast cancer a few years before. But also, as I said to you about my experience with the sparrows when I was only 20, to me, Osmos was a lament and it was full of sorrow for the earth. And that was why part of my goal was not to use this technology and this spatial medium for escape, but to draw people's attention back to the sheer extraordinariness of their own embodiment and the fact that they're alive. So that was very much my original goal. And in, I would say the work probably succeeded given the response. And then I wrote a second paper in 1997 called Changing Space, VR as an Arena of Embodied Being which I think was published in 97. And that's where I examined the responses and analyzed what I thought was happening, including the sensation of floating as if gravity free, but the, the paradox while floating, also being grounded, the seeing through things, the passing through things, and so on. And all of that really being a de-automatization of perception. And I that whole paper is about 
is about that. And um, if you'd like, I could read an excerpt or I can leave it to the end, but it would fit right here. And it is from the Japanese philosopher Nishitani. And it's the last, um, last page of my doctoral dissertation. It's how I ended the dissertation. Should I read a few excerpts because it's exactly related to what we're talking about? Yes. Yes, please. Okay. Um, it was it was by um, Nishitani in his book Being in Nothingness. I, it was probably written in the perhaps in the forties. I, I don't have the dates in front of me. And here I was. So I'm kind of quoting my own writing that I'm saying Nishitani writes that normally, as in habitually. Quote: We proceed through life on and on, always caught up with something within or without ourselves. It is these engagements, he explains, that prevent the deepening of awareness. And then among these engagements, he includes the arts, and he would certainly include virtual reality. But to go on, sometimes, he writes, the horizon opens up at the bottom of those engagements and, quote, something seems to halt and linger before us, something which brings the restless, forward, advancing pace of life to a halt and makes it take a step back. And in doing so, he suggests, as the Zen phrase says, this turns the light to what is directly underfoot as in illuminating what is underfoot of the self. And then I wrote, I interpret what he means is that sometimes under certain conditions, we can be temporarily released from our distractions, our habits, and everyday assumptions to stop and question the very being and non-being of life, our own individual life of all life itself. And when we do that for a moment, this is my writing, not his. We can see our former blindness, our taking for granted all of this. And then I'll just skip forward. I came to the medium, I'm still reading. I came to the medium of immersive virtual space. So this would have been back in 1993, 94, with the belief that it was more capable than any other medium for exploring and communicating this concern, but only if its instrumentalizing tendencies were subverted. I'm skipping forward a bit. I'd, I had referred to my intentions as lighting a lamp in a dark corner in terms of wanting to draw attention to or illuminate what I considered to be the most intriguing yet overlooked potential of this medium. And I say overlooked because, and remember, I'm writing this in about 2000, so it's almost, it's 20 years ago. I say overlooked because techno-romantic claims for the technology have long overshadowed what I believe to be its richest, most paradoxical capacity for serving as a bodily experiential experimental arena wherein not only habitual perceptions and behaviors may be dehabituated, 
but alternative visions of reality can be manifested and kinesthetically explored. And then lastly, I wrote, when its biases and conventions are subverted, I believe that this medium can be used to temporarily release us, not from our bodies as popularly imagined, but from the worldview that would be Heidegger's technological and framing that constrains us and blinds us and binds us, returning us instead to a remembering, a recollection of the very embodied and mortal beings that we are among a myriad of other living beings here with us, all of us, so ephemerally just passing through. Thank you so much for sharing this. It's incredibly beautiful. I think, I mean, I think it really leads me also to my next question. What I think is so interesting coming from an architectural background and also you are speaking to an architectural audience that you use as a tool or method almost to make people feel that yeah, paradoxical presence or the sense of ambiguity um, through spatiality or yeah, you call it immersive virtual space. So I think the focus that you said, I mean, you use the word of enveloping the immersion within space. So this idea of yeah, enveloping or embodied spatial perception to, to surface yeah, topics, themes that are important to you. Um, how did that develop to become so important? Like, were there certain experiences that you had or certain references that you used to work with? Um, I think it's, yeah, it's it's quite fascinating as, a, as an artist, as a painter, as somebody to work with this uh, medium to have such a, um, yeah, such a, such a, sensitive or careful understanding of spatial perception and also its potential. Um, if you could please expand a bit on that. Well, this would go back to probably the most extraordinary experience of my life when I was 16 or 17. I was in a field alone at night drug-free and in darkness and all of a sudden for no apparent reason my mind expanded to the horizon so that the circumference between my mind and the world were one and as soon as I became consciously aware of it it faded so I would say all of this goes back to that. But there's three more experiences that would have informed my sensibility of enveloping space. Another would be the that you mentioned, I, th I think briefly, is um, I'm extremely myopic in terms of eyesight. Minus 18 or 19 diopters, so I couldn't cross the street. I'd get killed by the first car, especially if the car was gray and the pavement was gray. So what this did is I don't see it as a weakness or a handicap. It opened a door, a doorway for me to see beyond our habitual 
assumptions about the world as um, space is empty filled with hard-edged objects. Instead, what I see if I take out my corrective lenses is I see space as soft, luminous, and enveloping, and there are no objects. There's only objects if I touch, reach out and touch. So that would be one. And then another would be scuba diving, which I haven't done for many years, but it was hugely influential because oceanic space isn't empty. I mean, our space that we live in every day, air is not empty either, but we perceive it as empty. But in diving, you can feel it sensuous against your skin. And as Gaston Bachelard wrote, quoting Philip Diolet, someone who's experienced the deep sea will never be the same again. And so I would say that that would be um, another one. And then the last one would be the experience of the enveloping horizon here, where I've lived for 30 years with distant mountain peaks all around, and that ties back to the earth and this particular place. And so my work has never been about the technology. It's always, that's only been the means for me. And my work hasn't been about spatiality either. It's really been about dehabituating perception and redirecting attention to our, to our being here. And this leads back to place. And this particular place where I live, where I've been in a deepening relationship for 30 years. And when the medium of virtual reality disappeared and helmets with wide field of views disappeared, I turned my attention to the land and began creating sculpting in space in terms of setting huge boulders in relation to the environment, sculpting ponds, and then doing architecture. And all of this was about is about enveloping space all around me. And um, basically, I shifted attention after a decade of talking to my fellow human beings about virtual space. I shifted to talking to the mountain. And in terms of my influences, but perhaps first I should say that includes looking after, that includes caring. And that goes back to the ethics I mentioned earlier in terms of this place. It's not wilderness, but it's wild. But it's been damaged. It's been mined. It's been logged. It's had commercial orchards. I can hear U.S. military helicopters flying the U.S. border, etc. But it still asks to be cared for as well as composed within. And that includes creating buildings that serve to frame attention towards the horizon. So that's where, for me, the, the architecture comes in. But it's still working with space. And when you asked me about the influences that I have had, that comes from Japan. I've done many research trips to Japan because if you study 
how they were designing wooden temples and gardens 800 years ago. They were choreographing how someone, visitors, move through space, where they look, where they turn, where they pause. And in that way, I would say, if I have any influences, one would be Muso Soseki, who was a Buddhist, Zen Buddhist monk, abbot, calligrapher, garden designer from about uh, 1300. And then there would be, um, I would say, James Terrell, whose work, especially in Japan on Nashima Island, Minamadera, is my favorite artwork in the world, which he did with the architect Tato Ando. The piece is actually called Backside of the Moon, but it's in the temple that Tato Ando built. But there's also Hiroshi Sugimoto, who began as an, a photographer, but is doing architecture and landscape design. So for me, I would say those should be very much my my uh, keep me company and inspire me. It's so amazing um, to hear how your focus has yeah, kind of shifted from working with the medium to concentrating or really yeah, also spending time and attending to the land. And uh, you mentioned the forest and the mountains. And I think that would be really beautiful maybe to hear a bit more about what you are doing now. So you describe how, how, you've, yeah, how you've moved there. And there has been, of course, quite a time in between doing that and now. And maybe you could tell us a bit um, about how um, yeah, what you're working on now and how maybe that has been affected by having worked in the past with virtual technologies. Well, the same year I began creating Osmos was the same year I bought the first land here. And in the, in the ensuing 25 years or so, I bought land 12 times. Every time a little bit comes available, I bought it to protect it. And so, um, that caring for this place takes a huge amount of time, especially with climate change, invasive insects. I mean, it's under stress like everywhere else in the in the world. Even if it feels like a small paradise, it's completely connected to all the issues that we are dealing with everywhere. But alongside of doing all of that along with the caring for and the composing within the land setting stones working with excavators designing buildings all of that i did return to vir working with so-called virtual technologies so i'll tell you about another seminal experience that goes back to 1991 even before i made osmos I had a nuclear bone scan associated with being diagnosed with breast cancer. And I saw my own skeleton live as phosphorescent green points against black space, similar to my first little glimpses of 3D vector graphics. And it was so shocking because if I moved, because it was about showing the, the from the chest up, if I moved, there was a little trace and all the little points moved because it was live. And it was so astounding 
I fainted and lost consciousness. So there was that experience. And then and almost a decade later in 1991, I saw 1999, I saw a demo on someone's laptop of phosphorescent green points against black space from LIDAR, which were point clouds. And I thought that would be a way to move forward from the semi-transparency from all those years ago. So I began exploring taking laser scanners into the forest, first in 2003, then 2009, and beginning in 2010. So that's going on to all more than more than a dozen years, put a team together that I'm still working with to make a portrait of the forest, not how it looks like habitually as objects in empty space, but how I imagine it and see it as fluxing energy. But to do this, we have had to develop our own software, which I named the SEER. S-E-E-R, because the existing softwares out there for dealing with LIDAR point clouds were all made for engineers. And so we've had to develop our own software, which is very much like creating a language. So that's why 12 years later, we're still working on this, that it's connected and interwoven with the, the setting the stones, the digging the ponds, the architecture. So it's this massive long-term work that takes all these different, different forms. So in that way, we're back to your asking about the actual and the virtual. There is no difference anymore for me. It's the same, whether I'm working, directing someone, developing software or driving an excavator. It's actually the same process. And with the software as a language, it's about attempting to go beyond the surface appearances of things here and reveal something that I sense is going on that I wish I could experience, but I cannot in terms of being a mortal being. And the whole creative process is uh, iterative. So it's all moving along, no end date, there's no deadline. So I like to have the luxury of no, no deadline. But the long-term goal here for me is that one day this place, which is now 1,500 acres, will be a research center and nature reserve that's already protected for writers and philosophers and artists who are interested in understanding place and how to deepen our perceptions of place, and in particular, this place and this mountain, because it's thinking past one's lifetime when you're planting trees or setting stones that will be there possibly for hundreds and thousands of years, you need to have that long-term vision. And so it's that vision that is behind all of this, actually. That's what makes me get up every morning. It's, the, it's that long-term vision. 
That's so amazing. Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, I cannot say that we can't wait because that would be to be impatient. So if somebody is working... You'll have to come and visit. Yeah, it sounds it sounds really exciting. I think this connection between also what you say, like dissolving these binaries between the virtual and the actual and how all these tools are becoming entangled with the place itself. It's it's so fascinating. Thank you so much for yeah, for sharing your insights and thank you for sharing your understanding of um yeah, of working with the virtual and I'm sure it's has been very inspiring for our listeners. Well, I think that I think what might be important or what I can say in closing is it's not about the technology. The technology is just the means. Technology is just a tool, but you have to remember inherent in the technology are cultural values. And if you don't subvert them or at least circumvent them, they're going to reinforce the value, the dominant values of our culture. But the technology is a means to say something else which is how I have always approached it. Thank you very much, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Female Pioneers in the History of Virtual Reality. Next episode, we look forward to having you with us again as we delve into another extraordinary life of a female pioneer in the world of VR. Thanks for listening to this episode. Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.